0: if you feel you you don't have enough tools, I mean, that's the time to to look for help. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, I think Argus did a lot of things too in communication. So they had a great emphasis of communication. You know, how do you communicate? And they had, you know, at that time, novel non-reflective windows that you could see the communication going. And they were really, it was end of life communication, but still was very, very useful. Uh, for instance, how you perform a... Good euthanasia, mm-hmm. you know, that the client goes away with a feeling that is sad but still positive.
1: Sorry for saying sorry, media presents the PER podcast, the best podcast for feline medicine and surgery with tips, tricks, and updates for the entire veterinary healthcare team. If you're dying to know more about cats, keep on listening. Here are your hosts, Dr. Susan Little, famous cat vet and textbook author, and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein, talented surgeon and social media geek. Hi, this is Dr. Susan Little. And Dr. Yola Kerpenstein.
2: And we are back with our special guest, our surgical oncology guest. Nicole Earhart, hi everybody.
0: Awesome, Nicole. So this is our second talk. I'm so
1: excited. To yeah, because we have lots
3: more to talk about. So I'm really happy to have more time with Nicole. Mm-hmm. I do think, um, you know, one of the things that's a, a bit of a barrier for people is cats don't like going to the vet. I mean, they don't. other species mm. don't like it either, <laughs> but, but cats it's really harder, like right? It. And so, <laughs> yeah. especially you got an old cat and you're yeah. kinda like, oh, don't want to traumatize them. But yeah. I will say that your veterinarian's the best at picking up these things early cause yeah. and, and, you know. Somebody else who's, like, taking the time to look in the mouth and yeah. and feel the abdomen. You don't do that to your own cat every day. No, you know. No, so even no. if you're a veterinarian, you don't. No,
2: clearly so. you don't because it happened to me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and I am kind of passionate about teaching and encouraging veterinarians to do good oral exams on cats, mm-hmm. right? I know it's hard, but we need good oral exams um, on cats. And we are learning more things to try to make the... The veterinary visit experience a little bit better for cat owners and 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 for cats. But you know you're you're uh, perfectly correct. I I know lots of cat owners take their cat into the clinic. The cat has a bad experience. They have a bad experience. And then to the owner, it's the lesser of two evils. It's easier to stay at mm-hmm. home. It's the
3: lesser of two evils. So right? what's the
0: holy grail in uh, squamous cell carcinoma? Oral squamous cell carcinoma that's not located really cranially.
3: That's not located cranially.
0: Yeah, because I think it, when the really rostral ones. They're pretty, pretty, pretty pretty yeah, so that's
3: one of things we
2: talked about this morning, that right, if they're very, very rostral in in the mandible, cats tolerate that um,
1: mm-hmm.
2: partial mandibulectomy surprisingly well, mm-hmm. good option. Mm-hmm. But the further back it gets, at the base of the tongue, cats right. do not tolerate tongue-ectomy
3: right. hardly at all, right? That's so, right, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, if it's on um, the gingiva, not at the base of the tongue, but near the maxillary mandible, we're still... Uh, treating those primarily with surgery and typically if they're further back in the mouth it's much harder to get clean Mm -hmm. margins so frequently we'll use some type of radiation therapy to clean up any microscopic disease that we have left that seems to be kind of still the standard of care Mm. however um, we treat more and more cats and as you mentioned often we see very advanced disease and so we see we treat more and more cats with stereotactic radiotherapy Mm. which is curative intent uh, large fraction radiation, so it's usually delivered in between three and five treatments in cats. Mm-hmm. And so um, that tends to be a, a common way that we'll, we'll treat them frequently if there's very advanced disease, which mm-hmm. would create a situation where the you know surgery to remove it would be highly morbid, it would create mm-hmm. a lot of functional deficits or whatever. And it is surprising how, I think the cats tolerate maxillectomy better even than mandibulectomy. We can do a lot with a maxillectomy. Uh-huh. But once you mess around with the mandible, it seems like those those are the kitties that uh, that seem to have a little bit of a harder time mm. recovering. So yeah, the other point I wanted to make, and and I think is is really important, you brought up about even though we were vets, we didn't know our cat was sick, and I th- I think that's that's a really important pe- piece that you know we don't judge. Um, at, at, yeah. I've certainly had my share of of early experiences where I thought, how did you not know? But but then you know the longer you stay in this business, you realize people people don't know and and I think I would just share you know it's really important that we support clients and help them not to feel like it's their fault that they didn't notice yep I think that's a really big piece um, and we need to help them understand it's not their fault the owner needs a lot of support Mm -hmm. you know as
2: Yolo was talking this morning about how it's a cancer journey for the owner too Mm -hmm. when the pet has the disease with a
0: lot of ups and downs yeah there Mm -hmm. there is
2: you know bad moments when you learn the diagnosis and there might be good moments like for my cat when I learned he could go into a new uh, clinical trial using a new um, uh, radiation protocol then you feel you know excited and then his disease comes back and you feel bad right so it's very up and down and we uh, we need to support the owners as they go through that it must be a big part of what you do too
3: it is and and that's actually part of what I really enjoy I mean uh, cancer there is one gift I mean it's a terrible disease but the one gift that cancer gives us is it gives us an opportunity to really to cut through all the kind of superficial stuff and really get into the heavy you know life and death and 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 as a result of that we we develop these relationships with people and we are very I don't know, it's a privilege to just be part of that process, even even though sometimes it doesn't end well to to act, walk alongside someone going through that journey, providing support, providing options, mm-hmm. and when we no longer can provide a quality of life, being able to provide a quality death, that's a gift. And, um, you know, I, I don't know how to describe it in any other way. I mean, it's been mm-hmm. a privilege to be part of that process mm-hmm. for so many people. And that's maybe one of the biggest, uh, best rewards that I guess I have... Even though we fail sometimes, mm-hmm. um, to know that we've get, at least given our best shot. and I think owners owners who love their pets desperately and would do anything. and I think in the end they that's the thing that they remember the most. Mm-hmm. How do you take care of yourself
2: because, as you mentioned you know you're, you're you're in a discipline that 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 often does not have the desired outcome that takes a personal toll on on us as well how do you take care of yourself
3: well, i'm lucky to work with a really compassionate team of people and so we do support each other i think having a, um, a sort of a support system or a network of people that understand what you're going through is extraordinarily important self-care is really important i'm very aware of um one of one of my kind of self-care techniques is I like to exercise, so that's yeah. a huge thing for me. I do yoga, do a little bit of mindfulness uh, things to just sort of clear my mind about you know what's been happening through the day. It it definitely takes its toll. I think um, today people are more have higher expectations mm-hmm. than they have, and we see more and more complex cases, mm-hmm. and and owners' expectations can sometimes be very unrealistic. And I think that's maybe the hardest part is to help them understand that this is, you know, you certainly don't want to get into a situation where an owner is being blaming for, for an outcome that you really had nothing to do with, but that happens very frequently. And I think it's important, um, especially as I work with, with students and residents, trainees to, to help them understand, uh, not to take that in and really yeah. develop a bit of a, you know, a me- you know, mechanism to, to release that. So we, we actually at CSU have, um, uh, a, a on every Friday where we talk about kind of the tough cases uh-huh. and how we manage that and just have a discussion it's more of a debriefing yeah. um, it's usually done in conjunction with our Argus group and there are a bunch of social workers and other uh-huh. people that do um, end of life and life skills kinds of things and uh, that helps a lot. I mean, just yeah. being able to debrief and not bring it into the weekend. But I think just being very cognizant of self-care. Yeah. Burnout's a, burnouts a you know, it's a literal killer of, of veterinarians. So we have to be really, really yeah. helpful. And, and, and modeling that for students and trainees is really
2: important. Yeah, I, I think, you know, the, the idea that you, you mentioned of having those rounds, sometimes just the sharing of the burden relieves it, just the telling of it, mm-hmm. right? The, the explaining what what you're feeling, um, simple as that is, the verbalizing of it, is a big step
3: Yeah, towards always, sharing it. We say, like, words are the trucks. I used to tell my little kids this. Words are the trucks that bring your feelings from the inside Aww. to the outside. And that's what helps you get your feelings out. <laughs> that's really good. It, but it's true.
0: The Argus Institute plays a big role um, because they are kind of the support system for clients, but also for clinicians. Hmm. Um, I noticed when I was there, which was quite a while ago, that they also can take away some of your burden by taking over that specific psychological part that you have to deal with. Because, you know, you're not only treating the animal, but often you're also talking with a client that is very distraught. So they can give you sometimes a little bit of that buffer. And I remember that when I went back to Utrecht, I really missed that in the beginning until uh, a good friend of mine who's a psych, a child psychologist started working with us mm. and taking away those really difficult clients or because demanding and that sort of things so so you could focus on you know curing the animal instead of always first the owner and that sort of thing so there's this balance where you I think to to have good self-care also n- means that you need to uh, set your borders mm. in a way because mm. I remember that you know, sometimes clients called me at two o'clock in the morning mm-hmm. to talk about things. Well, you know, I, you know, I needed to have my private time at that time. So mm-hmm. it, it's really important to think about, um, you know, where, where where is your limit and what, what do you accept and what don't you accept and how can you, you know, vent. And the interesting thing is I was talking when I was in Colorado with a uh, pediatric oncologist and I, I, that's what I wanted to be. You know, when I was young, I want to be a pediatric oncologist. Hmm, I didn't know that. And, and I asked him. I thought so thought you
2: want to be an Egyptologist.
0: Yeah, that too. <laughs> too. I, I had <laughs> a, lot a lot of but, dreams. had uh, a lot of dreams. Yeah. But uh, so and I asked him, so how do you deal? Because now you're talking, we're talking pets. Now you're talking kids mm-hmm. and owners of, you know, and and parents and that sort of thing. So and and he said, you know, sometimes I just need to be alone. Mm-hmm. I need I need to bike alone. I just need to. Get get the wind in my face, clear my head, Mm -hmm. don't think about anything. And but he also said I get a lot of optimism out of it. You know, Mm -hmm. I know that I'm the one that can help. Mm -hmm. And that gives me a lot of strength. So it's kind of the, the it's yeah, you deal with bad disease and death a lot, but you also deal with Lots of positive emotion and lots of clients that are so thankful for what you do. And Mm -hmm. that's a lot of energy, too. So it's kind of this balance that you have to have.
3: Yeah, I so agree with that. And uh, certainly enlarging your team, like you were saying, it was a burden until you enlarged your team by having this other person who was better at the social aspects Mm -hmm. of dealing with that was a a real relief of the burden of feeling like this was all up to you. And I I would say I think that's a really great lesson that. It isn't all up to us, and oftentimes we do have to enlarge our team, whether that's in the clinic or just our own support team. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe you know you want to get a life coach, or you want to join a, you know a group that does cycling, or whatever it is, just in a way that you, you have have ability to to create that balance and boundaries in your life. I think that's a really good point. Seems to me that, and
2: and especially these days in veterinary medicine, we could make better use of of services like um, social workers and psychologists and counselors um, that I don't see broadly used and certainly in private practice, a little bit, but not a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, th- that makes perfect sense to me. I mean, after all, as much as I can learn through experience, I'm still not trained as a psychologist. Mm-hmm. I'm not trained as a counselor. And that's one of the burdens we bear in veterinary medicine that we're asked sometimes to be things that we really cannot be. And it's not a fault or a failing yeah. to say, that's not my strength, right. you know, but, but here I can recommend, you know, this person, um, who, who may be able to, uh, to help you
3: that mm. it's not a weakness. No. And know. it's terrifying when you see someone really struggling and, mm. you know, I mean, we probably all, each of us have had experience with suicidal clients, yep. uh, or violent clients or, you know, and and that's that's a situation we really never were trained to deal with in vet school. I think they're better and better now, mm-hmm. and certainly I see a lot of really great communications training, great uh, de-escalation training, which I think is really a good, important uh, skill to know. Um, and uh, so I think I think back in the day, you know, perhaps when we were in vet school, things were a lot less uh, proactive there. But I, I really see some very positive changes, and I I know the students are are much more well-rounded than we used to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I yeah.
0: totally agree, totally agree. And, and and if you if you feel you you don't have enough tools, I mean, that's the time to to look for help. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, I think Argus did a lot of things, too, in communication. So they had a great emphasis of communication. You know, how do you communicate? And they had, you know, at that time, novel non-reflective windows that you could see the communication going. And they were really it was end of life communication, but still was very, very useful. Uh, For instance, how you perform a good euthanasia, Mm -hmm. you know, that the client goes away with a feeling that is sad, but still positive. Mm -hmm. And I think that they they did a lot of effort there, which I really appreciated. I have to say so. um, So what what is the ideal model for aging?
3: Hmm. The ideal model? Well, I I was I still say that there is no other laboratory or research model that lives in our houses with us <laughs> and ages naturally. Mm-hmm. In every other way, we induce aging diseases or changes, whether that's genetically or or whatever in 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 laboratory animal research or even a lot of the re- aging research is done in yeast and fruit flies and worms and other things, mm-hmm. mice too. Mm. Um, but there is no other. Um, there is no other animal that, does, that ages right alongside us. And I, I really think that grand challenge of aging, you know over 25% of the global population is gonna be over the age of 65 by the That's year crazy. 2050. And we are so unprepared for that as a society. Mm-hmm. Um, we, need to, we need to be able to translate some of these, um, these new discoveries into, uh, into reality. And what's beautiful about the comparative medicine concept is that we're allowing not only human health to be improved, but we're improving the health of the of the creatures that share our planet with us. And mm-hmm. I think that's that's a noble pursuit. I don't mm-hmm. think there's anything more noble than that, really. And there's quite a link there because not only we have people people age, animals age, but often aging
2: people own aging animals too. Mm-hmm. 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 Right. And that's another just layer of of, of complexity when you've got uh, both of them going through the you know these uh, these stages of life and and trying to deal with their individual challenges and then the aging person trying to help the uh, the aging pet at the same time yeah. so um, it, it adds multiple layers of complexity um, it does. To, to the it, issue
3: and also multiple layers of of potential benefit you know pets and aging um, pets uh, are a positive or they're an increase in longevity and health span influence in human. So there are, I mean, you, you think about the, just the complexity of the problems, but also the complexity of teasing out where the benefits are for yeah. each of the species yeah. is also a, a, a rather daunting task. It is, actually.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yep, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, so we talked a, a little bit about um, oral squamous cell carcinoma. I'm guessing that one of the other um, traditionally main surgically treated tumors in cats has been things like injection site sarcomas. Mm-hmm. Are you
3: still seeing seeing those you know we see them um, we see them less frequently yeah. it seems, isn't that interesting seems to be we, it does it? and yeah. I will say that it is geographical so depending mm. on you know where I lecture in the world I'll often ask people you know how many people see X number a month mm-hmm. you know, right and and depending on where you are, some people, you know, some places in the world still see a ton of them. We're we're much better at. Um, I think we've spread the word. I think many of the national and international organizations have been very good at awareness yeah. training for both pet owners as well as veterinarians. And then you know, vaccine practices have changed and a vaccines lot. Vaccines have changed. Vaccines mm-hmm. have changed. So thankfully, I think we are making an impact. And when you think about that, that's amazing, really, yeah, that we're is. making an impact in that disease. Uh, Still, though, you know when they happen, they're they're tough disease to treat, Um, and you know the best approach to these tumors is always going to be multimodal. Mm -hmm. Um, That's that's always going to give us the best outcome, Um, and uh, so that's so we do see them. Mm. We we tend to uh, have a number of different ways that we treat them, depending on the individual patient, the size of the tumor, the location, etc. So. Uh, but it almost always off, uh, involves um, radiation and surgery, and plus or minus chemo in some cases. Are you still seeing intrascapular ones? Uh, yes, we yeah. still see them. Yeah, and they're always very challenging, yeah. and they're often much bigger in the intrascapular area than they are if Anywhere they occur else. elsewhere on the body, just because there's that much more space space to hide, yeah. you know. And so we see. We do see them, but boy, I remember cutting so many mm-hmm. more of those back mm-hmm. yeah. maybe ten years ago, yeah. and yeah. now we we do so few, so many fewer, and they tend to be smaller than they used to be. Mm-hmm. So well. maybe awareness about. Um,
2: uh, about them is better, mm-hmm. right? And and they're more likely to get referred and get treated when they're early. Yeah,
3: we used yeah. to see a lot of them that were removed without yes. really realizing that's what they were, yes. and they would grow back very rapidly. So you'd be the be, second, you know, or sometimes at it, not, the third or mm, fourth, and those. And you are need just to be the first. So hard, yeah, yeah. You I, need th- to be I first.
0: think the this tumor really also changed the way we look at removing aggressive tumors mm-hmm. in general. So we always used to say, okay we do three centimeter around it and then one fascia layer, you know, as a general rule. In this tumor, that doesn't work. Right. And so there's some really good research done where it shows that you really have to take five centimeters and three mm-hmm. fascia layers. So how aggressive you are, because these, these tumors have these, first these skip metastases, satellite mm-hmm. metastases. I mean, it's just really such an aggressive disease and how fast they grow. So it, it changed my vision. First, of course, we knew that we need to get him as early as possible, but also how aggressive you can be. And the one thing I really appreciate from Withrow is that he had no limit. Hmm. So for he teaches you to be an oncologic surgeon, to be able to say, OK, most people say this is impossible, but, you know, we're going to try it and we will do more than uh, than is described normally. Mm-hmm. And I think being challenged by that uh, and 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 not having that limitation really makes you do things that you know are curative-hmm
3: so. yeah he was a, he was a what was his motto? Never let the fear of closure uh, dictate your margins, right? Oh, so, yeah, good one. Yeah, he was the yeah. one that taught me that in human medicine, the guys who take the tumors out and the guys that actually close the wound are two totally separate teams. <sighs>
0: and they don't like each and other. And they
3: do not high-five going in and out of the OR. They no. do not like each other. <laughs> but it was for that a good reason because they didn't want the surgeons to be biased in terms of how they might close yeah. something based upon... Um, how, what they thought they could yeah. Uh, yeah. do with it after. Exactly.
0: Yeah, and on the other hand, hand you know that's from one side the other on the other hand is you don't want to have a team close that has been working for eight hours removing a tumor Mm -hmm. because you need to have your mindset to and, and and you know i when i went to holland i shifted a little bit from mainly only doing oncology to more reconstructive and And it's tough to do a really long surgery and then also do a major reconstruction. Mm -hmm. It's much easier to come in fresh and say, okay, now I'm going to reconstruct and you'll probably do
3: much better. A better job, yeah. Yeah. Um, It's also worth mentioning though that because we are using multimodal treatments, we can um, oftentimes uh, have not only better results, but also be uh, more cosmetic, more... Um, strategic if you will in terms of how we remove these rather than sort of the slash and burn that we used to do so you know a lot of times we'll use radiation first uh, and of course radiation can always get it or... it's not so much to shrink the size it's really to sterilize a larger area uh, if you will so that if there is the little microscopic crab legs or skip metastasis mm-hmm. you know you're hopefully collecting you're hopefully taking care of that within a field so should you leave some cells behind you have now rendered them incapable of dividing and, and surviving. So you know they've gotten enough DNA damage that if they try to divide, they'll die instead of grow into another tumor. So there are a lot of good studies that uh, show that you know doing radiation, whether it's before or after, is really improving the outcome, regardless of margin size. Mm-hmm. So that's another good reason
2: why, when when primary practice veterinarians might suspect an injection site sarcoma, they, they other than the incisional biopsy to confirm they really should then mm-hmm. get help especially if the owner is an owner who is interested in and uh, in, in seeing uh, a specialist and and doing as much as possible for the cat they should you know then then wait because that the first thing you do is mm. important right, right? so yeah.
3: important and you know once you put a scalpel to the skin you forever change the tumor environment so Certainly, getting a biopsy, a strategically placed biopsy that isn't contaminating uninvolved tissues, is a very important thing. So, understanding how to place your biopsy tracks so that they're easy to remove. But then, you know, um, the idea that you've got one shot here uh, from a surgical perspective to do the best job, and if you if you aren't prepared to be, you know, relatively aggressive and uh, understand what you're dealing with, you're probably not going to do what's right uh, for that pet you're not going to give them the optimum treatment mm. pathway that they potentially could have had mm. should you have waited. Yeah. So it's a tricky tumor.
2: You have to do the biopsy right, mm-hmm. right? And then you have to be quite careful about uh, about surgery should you choose to do it do it yourself. Agreed. Yeah. You know, in a lot of other lumps and bumps we might just like take off the lump or bumps and the whole jobby in, right, Mm -hmm. for histopath, but this is one where
3: you have to be much more thoughtful than that. Yeah. And I would say really for any lump or bump, it would be, it's very important to know what you're getting into prior to taking it off. I would say, you know, every lump or bump should have have at least a fine needle aspirate to know, is this something that could be uh, neoplastic? And if it is, uh, you know, do I need to sort of rethink this approach of just kind of remove and diagnose? Perhaps there's another way. And I think the, you know, un- unintentional removal of tumors or, or poorly planned margins is probably one of the biggest causes of, you know, recurrence and then in some cases even metastatic disease. There was a great study in, in humans that showed that in over just about 600 consecutive sarcoma patients, this is human surgery, over 70% of them had their optimum treatment pathway compromised by a unplanned excision or poorly planned excision. Wow. Because and if that happens know, on the human side, you know, yes. it's just as bad, if not worse on the veterinary side. And, and it was interesting in that study, they were able to show that in 10% of those patients, it led to early death. So it's, it's a, it was sobering, um, and, and earth shattering in my mind to think mm-hmm. that that kind of thing can happen in human medicine still today. and yeah. certainly it happens. I, I think many. they
0: also have shown that if you have your treatment done by a oncologic specialist, your survival rate is much higher so it's it's that's true it it in these cases obviously it's a good idea to start thinking about you know let's go to the specialist at a certain point yeah, yeah if
2: we can if one's if available you know we have to recognize sure. of course that not all their veterinarians are practicing in areas where um where that might be possible so mm-hmm.
3: that's true but i think yeah. if you're approaching it from the standpoint of uh, what is it What am I dealing with? Where else is this? And how bad is this? And so once you kind of answer those three questions, I think it's a lot easier to formulate a plan that might be appropriate. So we just need to think about what's the appropriate margin? What's the appropriate dose of surgery for this thing? And without knowing what you're dealing with, then it would be really hard for us to understand, anybody to understand what the appropriate dose might be of surgery.
0: And and you need to think about staging too. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, where is this tumor? Mm -hmm. So it's not, maybe not only a local problem, Yeah, it might be in the lymph nodes, it might be Mm. spread, and then you can...
2: So these ones tend, the the fibrosarcomas or the typical injection site sarcomas, as I understand, tend to
3: not have a high metastatic rate or tend to metastasize late, is that correct? That's true. Um, Somewhere as aggressive as they are locally, you'd expect them to also have a really high metastatic rate, but in fact, their metastatic rate is much lower than you would expect, around the 25% range, and eventually they will met. Um, lungs, and some animals, typically. yes, yeah, yeah. usually kitties will get it in the lungs. Um, sometimes uh, it will be right at the time of diagnosis that you'll see it. Mm. Um, but most of the time, um, if it hasn't been carved on a couple of times before you see the patient, usually they're met free. And if we can get the local disease under control, frequently that really prevents or At least significantly delays the onset of metastatic disease, which Mm -hmm. is what we want because metastatic disease is what kills you. Yep. Right? So, yeah.
0: This has been awesome. Wow. I'm always the timekeeper. So, uh, yes, Yol is the (laughs) one (laughs) who
2: tells us we have to stop
0: right when we're in a good part. (laughs) I know, but yeah, no, this is just awesome. Yeah. I love that we
2: got the chance to not just talk about um, oncology, but about uh, the healthy aging and the uh, translational medicine, and that we also had a chance to, uh, you know, to think about bigger pictures of things yeah. that's great mm, it's yeah. been a but, pleasure but there's
0: so many tumors we still have to talk about mm. i know well yeah. anytime
3: happy <laughs> I'm to come happy. back and Yay. talk more that
1: sounds awesome that's great all right thanks Nicole. thank you very
3: thanks much Thanks for having me
1: dr susan little is a feline medicine specialist with two cat only hospitals in ottawa canada she is best known as an international speaker and as the author and editor of two textbooks the cat clinical medicine and management And August, consultations in feline internal medicine. Along with three cats, she also admits to owning two dogs. And you can follow her on social media with the handle at Step three is to treat the cat for at least two to three weeks with an appropriate diet and see if the stone gets smaller. If so, keep feeding that diet until the stone is completely gone on follow-up radiographs. If not, check compliance with the owner and look for alternative treatment options.